0: This is the Area 941 Radio Wolinsky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Wolinsky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Vahini Vera, whose novel is titled The Immortal King Rao. Vahini Vera, this is her first novel. She has a collection of short stories called This is Salvaged, studied at Iowa Writers' Workshop. But what really comes into play here, spent nine years as the tech reporter at Wall Street Journal, which we'll talk about, and has written for the business section at New Yorker, and is a contributing writer at Wired. just before I press the record button here, I've been having a lot of tech problems, and I figured since you're a tech writer, you're good at this, but it turns out you're not that good at this. How does that work that you write about tech, but don't necessarily know the details of tech?
1: When I started out as a tech reporter, I fell into it. I was went to college in the Bay Area, and then I got a job. My first job out of college was at the Wall Street Journal, and they put me in the San Francisco Bureau because it was nearby, And, you know, when you write about these companies, as a journalist, like you're not writing about the details of the technology. Yeah, I need tech support as much as the next guy.
0: The Immortal King Rao is an alternate history, a dystopian alternate history, and half of it deals with a future that involves things that are going on today. This book has two elements, two separate stories. One is the story of a man named Rao, Growing up in India and coming to America and getting involved in tech, and the other takes place a hundred years later, where tech has kind of conquered the world, and that's a dystopia. Were these two sections always intended to be part of one novel?
1: No. The way the book started was with King Rao, this character, King Rao, who was going to be born on this coconut grove in the south of India, like in the middle of the 20th century sometime. And I knew that he was going to move to the US in the seventies in his twenties and become a computer programmer and start a company. So that's all that I knew. And what happened was Early on, I realized that I didn't feel that I had the sort of narrative authority myself to tell that story straight, which is to say, I couldn't figure out how to do like a first person narration where I, I myself as the writer was trying to channel King Rao, right, and tell the story as if I were King Rao. I come from a family that that has roots on a coconut grove in the South of India. And my book is, the, the coconut grove in my book is based on that coconut grove. I, as a journalist, have written about tech companies, including tech companies that got started in the 1970s, but I haven't had direct firsthand experience with any of that stuff. And so I felt like I needed to invent some form of narration that would allow me to tell those stories without having to do the heavy, lifting in terms of being able to be credible right of trying to pretend to really channel this character and this world and that's where athena the narrator of the book who is king rao's daughter came from i don't really remember how it came to be i mean i do remember i do remember now that i'm thinking about it actually so what what happened was i i decided that i was going to have this daughter of king rao who through biotech innovation could access his consciousness, his mind, and therefore tell his story. I was gonna have her tell the story. And at first the story was still just the story of King Rao's life, you know, growing up in the 50s, moving to the US, starting this company. And then the more friends I had read the book, the more I kept hearing, okay, but what about Athena herself? What's her story? And so pretty late in the process, I realized in the writing process, I realized if she's the one telling the story, people are going to be curious about her world. And so a lot of what I've heard people talk about when they talk about the book, that the the stuff that's happening in the sort of dystopian future is sort of the newest material in the book and the material I didn't know would be in there at the start.
0: As you were constructing this, it also meant one big change which was that rather than tell a linear story of King Rao, in other words, he grows up and somehow becomes a tech wizard. In fact, early on, we already know his history because it's being written from 100 years in the future. Uh, did you then have to go back and rearrange the yes, content? there was a lot
1: way? of structural editing. The book took me 12 to 13 years to write, and I think it was largely because... It was really hard to figure out how to put the puzzle pieces together. I wanted the reader to know that King Rao is a significant figure from the very beginning of the book, but then also it that presents a kind of narrative problem because. If you know how the thing's going to end, like what is going to propel you through the pages? Like what's the point of reading the book if we're starting at the end? So I had to think about what it was that provided the tension in the story. If if at the beginning of the book, you already know more or less where things end up. And I think the answer to that question, like with many books, is that the book, the whole narrative is meant to address this question of how we got there, right? Like how King Rao got from this small family, humble family coconut grove in the south of India in the 1950s to being the most powerful person in the world, the wealthiest person in the world.
0: We'll get to the dystopian part in a minute, because uh, over those 12 years, and particularly in the past few years, as you developed your story of algorithms, of course, the story of algorithms began to parallel what's in the book in a very, very uncomfortable way. But let's first talk about the early years. The name King Rao, did that just come to you in a flash?
1: Again, I spent so many years on this book that there's a lot that I don't remember. But what I do remember is that that was not his name for the first few years. His name was Ramesh. And at some point... And I don't know who to give credit to for this, because it might have come from me, but it might have come from a reader. At some point, either I or someone else said he needs to have a more symbolic name, a name that's accomplishing more. And if I came up with it, I came up with it. If somebody else came up with it, it certainly resonated with me. I don't remember where King itself came from. But I like it as a reader. I like books that swing for the fences. I like books that have a sort of bigness and boldness about them. And I like the idea of having this guy have this name that was so literal, right? He ends up being the most powerful, wealthiest person in the world, and his name is King.
0: Let's go back to those early years of King Rao before we get into who he is and how that relates to the research. I can see quite a bit of Bill Gates and Steve Jobs there. The life in India and the garden and the village and the complex that he lives in, was that similar to what you had in India? Yeah.
1: So my dad grew up on a coconut grove in this small village in the south of India in the state of Andhra Pradesh. And growing up, we would go back and visit. We didn't visit all that often. We visited, you know, a small handful of times. Like I could count them on one hand before I finished high school. But every time we visited, we went to the city where a lot of our relatives were at that point. And then we also made sure to go back to that coconut grove. Not a lot had changed since my dad's days growing up on that coconut grove. It was fun for us as kids, you know, like there were, there was all this wild feeling land that we could explore and all the cousins would run around. And then we would sleep in the house that my dad had grown up in because that was the house that was still there. And at the time, especially in the early visits, his dad still lived there. So it was a really special place. But like I said, we didn't go back and I have friends who are Indian American who go back every summer to India who grew up going back every summer. And that wasn't me. I didn't have that kind of deep, regular connection with my dad's ancestral land. When I started writing this novel, I went back about a year into writing the novel. I went back there and I spent a little more time there interviewing relatives and just like walking around the Coconut Grove and taking notes and just like trying to absorb a sense of what it's like there and what it's, especially most importantly, what it was like in the 50s and 60s and 70s so that I could infuse that into the book.
0: There's a sequence in which King Rao, as a, as a child, befriends this guy <laughs> and goes across a river. Is that based on a story you were told?
1: It is not, actually. I can see why you're asking. <laughs> that, I think, may be my favorite chapter in the book. And it feels very vivid to me as a person who wrote it. It sort of like came to me and felt very real, very vivid. And I can't say that I know where it came from. You know, it's funny because I heard a lot of stories from both my parents growing up, but actually, especially from my mom. My mom's a great storyteller. And when I was growing up, like I just, you know, I would sit in the kitchen with her while she was cooking and she would tell me all these stories about growing up. And so there's so much in the book. I had both of my parents read the book well before it was published, mostly to help identify whatever had gotten wrong. And they both read it and said to me, oh, you put so many of my stories, so many of my details in there. And then they would name some of them, especially my mom would name a couple of things where she said, oh, you got that from me. I told you that story. And I wouldn't remember that she's the one who told me the story. Like, I would think that I just came up with that on my own. So it's very possible. I started this by saying that I made it up out of whole cloth. It's very possible that I heard that story from one of my family members and just absorbed it. And now it's on the page.
0: Fahini Vara, the general story there involving the relationships of the cousins, the brothers. Uh, Is there a kind of parallel with your family in terms of how they related to each other and how they related to the garden?
1: Yes. My dad was the son of one of three brothers. So in the novel, I have these two brothers who play a pretty central role in the family. One of them is very active. One is very passive. In my dad's family, there were three brothers. One of them was sort of the family patriarch and is really credited within the family for modernizing the Coconut Grove, making it into a really viable business. If there is a model for Chinna, who is the family patriarch, one of the family patriarchs in the book, that uncle of probably it, There was a middle uncle who did a lot of the work on the farm, who sort of organized a lot of the labor, kept things running. So if this oldest brother was, say, the CEO, this middle brother was like the COO. And then actually, my dad's father was a teacher. You know, all the kids, my dad, his siblings, all of the cousins, they all worked on the farm regardless of who their parents were, right? Everybody was sort of working on the farm together in the family. But I think in part because my dad's was a teacher, he was very invested in education. And so his children, particularly his two sons, my father and my uncle, my paternal uncle, went on to get educations, left the, co- the family Coconut Grove at a relatively young age. My dad studied medicine, he moved to the UK, and then he moved to Canada, and then he moved to the US. He still feels very closely tied to his hometown and to his community and to his family. He goes back all the time. But there are absolutely similarities in some of the family dynamics, the way in which certain rivalries flare up in the book definitely has its roots in some family rivalries in my real life family. You know in the book there's a pretty big cast of characters on the coconut grove that i think some readers may struggle with but it felt very true to life i was trying to figure out how on the page to render like the actuality of life in a place like that and there you know there are places like that all over india all over rural parts all over the world right where it's not an accurate depiction to tell a story and it involves four people living in one house right and so all of that came very was very informed by the facts of my family.
0: What's the nearest city, so that if someone would look on a map, they would know where the scenes take place?
1: Probably the nearest big city, big-ish city, is a city called Rajahmundry. It's R-A-J-A-H-M-U-N-D-R-Y. This is in the very lush, verdant Konasima district of Andhra Pradesh. So coastal southern India. It's a really verdant place. It's a place that started to really prosper after a dam and an important network of canals was put in there, that led to an explosion in in irrigation and therefore in in people's ability to farm. It's a special place.
0: It seems that Rao's life kind of parallels Steve Jobs, and that we have the coconut versus the apple and yet at the same time takes place in an area where Microsoft was. So this is an alternate history where instead of these two companies competing, we have won the coconut. Where did that come from, and what conscious moves did you make to incorporate Jobs and Gates?
1: My first job out of college was at the Wall Street Journal as a tech reporter, And my first beat, you know, I started as sort of a general assignment, you know, tech and business writer. But my first beat, once I was given a beat, was Oracle, the big software company run by Larry Ellison, which was started in the 1970s. You know, I read biographies of Larry Ellison and I would try to talk to people who knew him in the 1970s just as part of trying to understand why this company evolved. And then because Again, I wanted to understand the context in which Oracle grew. I started reading about Steve Jobs and Apple, and I started reading about Bill Gates and Microsoft. It was probably more than I needed to do to effectively cover Oracle, but at some point I just started finding it pretty fascinating. This was a time, you know, the mid 2000s when things were really at an interesting turning point in tech. And I think we all, felt it, even though we didn't know quite how to define it. We certainly didn't know how big it would get. But, you know, I went to college at Stanford and the year Facebook launched was my senior year of college. And there were these people who I knew in college, you know, who I took classes with or worked on the school paper with who were going off to get jobs at Facebook or were going to get jobs at Google, which was going public right around then. You know, it it was exciting. And it was also a little worrisome, but I don't want to overstate anyone's worry at that time because we didn't know how things would would evolve. And so all of that was sort of in the zeitgeist and was bubbling around for me when I started writing the book. I I covered Oracle for a couple of years, but while I was covering Oracle, Facebook was growing and the Wall Street Journal didn't have anyone on the Facebook beat because it had grown so quickly. You know, one day it was this small private company that we were barely paying attention to. And the next day it was really large. And so I ended up on the Facebook beat as well. So I added that to my portfolio and became the paper's first Facebook reporter. And then after a few years of that, I wanted a bit of distance, I think. I also wanted to take some time for my own fiction. And so in 2008, I took a leave of absence and went to graduate school in creative writing. I thought I was going to write about totally unrelated things. I I didn't plan to write about the tech industry in any way, but I think a lot of what fascinated me while I was writing about these companies had stayed with me. And I think that's where some of the genesis of Coconut and um, the inspiration from these existing companies came from. You know, I struggle with alternate histories that are too alternative, you know, that are too different from the reality that we live in. And so I think it was a conscious move on my part to create this company that looked a fair amount like the companies that really evolved out of that time in the 1970s.
0: We have Coconut, and then we have Harmonica was the one that blew up, and then there's Clarinet, which has direct links between people's brains, and all of this is, you know, it's popped up in a lot of science fiction, never quite putting it in the context of a company like Apple, but that's pretty obvious. The main thing, though, are the algorithms and how they affect people. When you began working, this would have been a long time ago. Yeah, there were algorithms, but they hadn't taken over to the degree that they do now and the degree that they do, of course, in the book. How did that work for you?
1: When I started writing the book, I knew that there would be a technology that allowed for a kind of mind reading that would allow a person using technology to enter somebody else's consciousness. I also knew that there would be a technology that would allow someone to access the internet. My inspirations there came less from the real world and more from, like you said, the sort of science fictional canon. And then a funny thing happened as I started writing, which was that reality started catching up to that. So Elon Musk started a company Neuralink that intended to do just, you know, um, and these other companies started cropping up. At that time, I did not have any algorithms in the book. I did not imagine in this future that I had created, I didn't imagine a dominant role for an algorithm, but at the same time while you know I went to graduate school I started the book and then I left grad school and I went back into tech journalism and so I was reading about and talking to people who were immersed in the world of AI I wrote a story for Fortune magazine about the AI industry it was a profile of a significant AI company in Canada it, it occurred to me that if I'm trying to write credibly about where the world might go if we continue on this path that we've set now. Algorithms and AI, AI algorithms in particular, would have to play a significant role just given how prominent they've become already in our culture. You know, they're already used in policing and in education, in war, in surveillance, right? Of citizens, of employees. And so if, if we're to accept that speculative writing, is intended to to sort of draw us a picture of where we might end up if we continue on one of the paths that we're on. It felt like a sort of algorithmic future had to be depicted.
0: The weird thing is that in the future, in The Immortal King Rao, Vohinivaur, in that future, algorithms have taken over to such a degree that your social standing depends upon how you perform in relation to the algorithms. And then a couple of weeks ago, I was reading, and that's exactly what's happening in China.
1: Yes. Yeah. I think it's really difficult. You know, we create these technologies, we humans create these technologies, and we find ways to profit from them. And the powerful find ways to, you know, further entrench their power using them. And so that's what we do. You know, we don't have very good mechanisms for preventing that from taking place. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like a lot of what I described in the book, I think, is happening in some form already.
0: Is there anything in the book that you kind of took a chance on and then, like this China thing that I heard about, and then suddenly you see it in a newspaper?
1: I've been hearing lately, especially on social media, people, readers will tweet some article about something dystopian that's happening in real life and say, huh, this reminds me of a book I read, you know, The Immortal King Rao. So the most recent one that comes to mind is that a reader tweeted, posted an article about how the state of Mississippi is in talks with a private company about managing and operating the city of Jackson's water system, according to the mayor. So this person tweeted that and said, just finish the Immortal King Rao, which captures exactly this kind of dystopia, where essentials like clean water and housing are all privatized and supplied by for-profit companies. It doesn't end well. So it's a little bit of a spoiler there.
0: The world government of the Immortal King Rao, one company of, quote, shareholders and then people who become X's and vanish to islands. Is that just from reading all the science fiction or do you have something else in mind there?
1: I wanted to show an alternate path. So to the extent that, again, in speculative fiction, we're showing readers possible futures, I was interested in showing this possible future that emerges if technology becomes a more and more powerful tool used by the rich and powerful to entrench their wealth and power. And I also wanted to explore what it might look like to protest that system, what a kind of viable system of protest even might look like, what it might look like to choose to excise yourself, oneself from a system like that. The X's were the result of this sort of intellectual exercise in trying to work that out. And as I worked it out, I became more and more invested in these characters, more and more fascinated by um, the plot arcs they were following. And I kind of followed them where they took me.
0: So it sounds as if what happened was you had the earlier section you and then the later section kind of grew organically and you just went with it and then put it all together.
1: That's exactly right. If I had tried to outline this book from the start, the outline would have looked nothing like the book that eventually emerged because I had no idea where it would take me.
0: Vahini Vahra, let's talk a little about your own career here. You grew up in Saskatchewan and eventually wound up in Oklahoma and later the Seattle area. Were there a lot of Indian families there? How did that work for you growing up? an indian in the land of native americans who are also called indians and a lot of white people
1: when i was growing up in saskatchewan we referred to ourselves in our family as as east indians because if you said i'm indian the assumption was that you were native american so it's a it's an astute observation or question we did have an indian community but the indian community in Saskatchewan was defined very differently at that time from, for example, the Indian community in Seattle today. In Seattle, there are so many Indians from all over India that the communities, and I'm generalizing here, but the sort of immigrant communities tend to cluster along regional and language lines. And so once I was growing up in in Seattle, when I was in high school, my family's community was a community from Andhra Pradesh, the region that my family was from, and they all spoke the same language and sort of had understood the same cultural references, watched the same movies. But growing up in Canada in the 80s as an Indian American, it felt to me, I don't know if this is accurate, you'd have to ask my parents, but it felt to me like we knew all the Indian Americans in the province, you know, in the whole province. And so when people got together, we might drive two hours to all meet at someone's house because that's what it took to get the critical mass you needed to have a get-together. And the common language was English, because these were people from all over India. There weren't enough Indian Americans to sustain these sort of individual language-based mini-communities.
0: What about the difference between Hindu and Muslim? Was there any Muslims involved, or was it all Hindu?
1: There were. I remember some Muslim families as well as Hindu families growing up in Saskatchewan, certainly, and we were all part of the same community. There is some diversity in in Indian communities everywhere. You know, sometimes people silo again along geographical lines or along religious lines or along ethnic lines, just like they do in any immigrant community.
0: That means that some of the old religious prejudices had to fall by the wayside because you were a community, which I guess helps in a weird way.
1: Yes, it's a complicated thing. If you're referring to things like rifts between Hindu communities and Muslim communities or rifts along caste lines or oppression along religious lines or caste lines, I think that exists everywhere all the time. And so I would hesitate to say that any of that necessarily falls by the wayside in immigrant communities anywhere. In my personal experience, I can say, I come from a Dalit background. My, my On my dad's side, my dad and his family are Dalit, and so I'm Dalit. And I knew that growing up, but I was not at all aware. I had no caste consciousness. I was not very familiar with what caste was all about. I didn't hear people talking about it much. I, you know, I didn't know the history. And so I can say that in my experience, it just, it wasn't something that, that that I was particularly aware of for many years until maybe my 20s or so when I started to, you know, to do more reading and understanding. And also as cast became a bigger part of the sort of broader social consciousness.
0: Vahini Var, moving on to your writing career, I assume you read a lot of science fiction, things like that early on. Uh, What prompted you to start writing, to become a writer?
1: I was one of those stereotypical, you know, bookish kids. I remember going to the library a lot as a kid and, you know, being an early reader. And, you know, I have one of those sort of like scrapbook from elementary school where every year we were supposed to, you know, say what we would be when we grew up. And starting in kindergarten, I said I would be an author. Actually, funnily enough, in the context of this conversation about this book sometime around like the second grade, I started saying I wanted to be a computer programmer as well, but it had nothing to do with any actual interest in computers. I think my mom just sort of like planted that seed and made me think I wanted to be a computer programmer because that's what she decided she wanted for me at some point in elementary school. So I've been interested in writing for a really long time and I would play around in middle school and high school. I started working on my high school newspaper and sort of like doing these summer programs in journalism in high school and then went to college and continued to pursue journalism. But also when I was in college at Stanford, there was this really robust undergrad creative writing program. And so starting my sophomore year of college, I started taking creative writing classes and just fell in love and continued taking them and taking them. And I had a great community of friends who st- are still in my writing group, who I still share work with.
0: You actually have written and published a lot of short stories along with your journalism, which comes out in a book next year. How do you feel about having written the novel? Do you kind of like short stories better at this point, or are you more interested in the novel?
1: I had always thought of myself as a short story writer for years. That was the only form I'd ever written in until halfway through graduate school when I started working on this novel. Then I worked on this novel for 12 to 13 years and that was all I, all I worked on all that time and so during that period I think I identified very much as a novelist. I tend not to think of myself as bound to any particular form. I'm really interested in language itself and you know I'm a journalist and so When the material that I'm working with requires being told journalistically, I'll write a piece of journalism, you know, I'll write a magazine story. And if the material feels like a short story, I'll write a short story. And then I've written more experimental pieces too that, you know, you could call essays, I guess, you know, non-fictional experimental pieces that are essayistic. And so I really am interested in seeing what the best form for The particular material I'm working with, the particular language is.
0: I assume it helps to have a writer in the household. Andrew Altschul is your husband. Is he also your first reader?
1: Yes. He's not necessarily my first reader, but he is my most frequent reader. So he read maybe four or five or six or seven drafts of this novel over the 12 or 13 years it took me to write it. He's read and given me feedback on just about every piece of short fiction I've written, every piece of journalism I've written, and he's a really excellent reader. And so I benefit from that. I'm a reader for him as well, but you'd have to ask him whether I'm a good reader for him.
0: Vahini Vara, now I'm going to move into an area which you didn't expect. I want to ask your opinion about certain things. There's an article yesterday about how Elon Musk doesn't like the Lord of the Rings series, and I'm thinking who the hell is he for me to even give a damn? I mean, seriously, he's just some guy who's really rich. It just seems that we've moved into an era where these people who have no taste, normal intelligence, but a great deal of ambition are suddenly being viewed as cultural icons.
1: I agree with you. I didn't see that story, but I will say that Powerful peoples keep entrenching their power. It just happens over and over in history. And we're in this newest phase of it. Also, as a journalist, I will say that we, the media, have some agency here. You know, we can choose to cover stories or not cover stories. And if Elon Musk decides to say he's not interested in the Lord of the Rings, it's up to us to determine whether that's a story or not. And if all of us determine that it's not a story and don't give it coverage, then hopefully it doesn't get amplified as much as it otherwise would. That said, because of the rise of social media, these kinds of things sort of have a tendency to sort of be self-amplifying. And these people who are powerful and wealthy tend to have a lot of followers, which is a kind of currency. In my novel, it's an actual representation of, of currency. But even now, in the actual world that we live in, the number of followers you have and the number of likes you get, that all is worth something. It means something. And and these people are very popular and I don't know how easy it would be to stop this ship from sailing.
0: Back in, I don't know, 2010, 2012, you can pick the year it began, obviously 2015 to 16, we saw social media turn incredibly toxic and dangerous as a reporter, talking about social media, interviewing people before then, say two thousand six to two thousand and ten, what I read is that nobody had any idea of the toxicity that would come. So let me ask you, did you
1: without overstating it, I will say that my colleagues and I all were aware of how this could progress. My colleagues in in journalism and tech journalism. The problem in journalism, especially at that time, was that speculation isn't really a responsible form of journalism. You know, you couldn't write an article saying, well, hey, listen, these companies are becoming so entrenched in our culture. They're so powerful that if this continues, X, Y, and Z might take place, right? Right one could see it potentially happening but to but to make a kind of prediction like that and print it on paper didn't seem right and it i think it still doesn't seem right to me today i'm pretty interested in these new this sort of new genre of of journalism like the stories that ed young was writing about the pandemic early in the pandemic where he would look forward and say all right listen if we continue along this trajectory here's what is likely to happen, or here, here's what might happen, here's how we can prepare. I think that's a relatively new genre. I see it in um, in climate journalism as well, that I think is useful. And I think it's emerged because we see that there's been this sort of gap in what journalism that doesn't do that can accomplish. I also think that fiction is a really useful Place to think about these kinds of things, to imagine these futures that may or may not actually come to pass, but draw a picture of what they might look like if they were to come to pass.
0: Well, I'm going to go back to my first question. You saw danger in 2010, let's say, you and your colleagues did, but the actual level of toxicity, uh, there was nothing in what you were seeing at that point that said, hey, we're going over a cliff. Or in the back of your mind, chatting with your husband, for instance, did you say, hey, you know, this could really, really go bad?
1: Looking back, and hindsight is 2020, obviously, but looking back, if I'm remembering correctly, I think we all were paying more attention to the. I'll speak for myself. I was more paying more attention to the entrenchment of wealth, the entrenchment of power in Silicon Valley and the way in which these companies were beginning to profit from our personal information and the way in which the systems they'd set up for us, these friend networks, for example, and this approach of using likes to determine how popular a post had been and therefore how much to further amplify it It felt like these were problematic. I don't remember being particularly attuned to what you're describing, to the possibility of of fake news or toxicity that was leading girls, young girls to have major self-image issues and anxiety and depression. These kinds of things were not at all on my radar. I, I can see now how they follow from the the problems that a lot of us identified. But no, those, those particular things weren't on my radar then.
0: You recently wrote an article, an Oral History of Globalization, for Business Week. And I was thinking two things, Tom Friedman and Donald Trump. And I'm just wondering, as you were doing your research, did you run across the fact that, say, Friedman was so wrong or that Trump or someone like Trump, but it turned out to be Trump, was able to use globalism to essentially create a fascist movement in this country.
1: Yes. It's something that I thought about in writing the novel as well. I was very aware of that. There's a sort of duality when you talk to people in places that had previously been left out of the global economy, right, and had been exploited for their resources, for their labor. And are now more integrated with the global economy. So on an individual level, talking to workers, I talked to many workers for that Business Week story, which was sort of an oral history of globalization, you could call it. A lot of individual workers said to me, I feel grateful that I have this job that I couldn't have had 30 years ago, that my parents couldn't have had. I'm getting paid way more than they ever would have. And then at the same time, there was an acknowledgement. often just in the subtext, that in order to have that job, they'd made big sacrifices. They'd left their families behind. They were barely sleeping. Uh, They weren't eating well. They were, in some cases, living under surveillance. They were pursued by the authorities because their employment, their form of employment, wasn't officially sanctioned. And so there are all these ways in which They were oppressed, they continued to be oppressed. And yet the sort of rhetoric of global, this sort of grand rhetoric of globalization that positions as a positive thing had sort of seeped into these workers' consciousnesses as as well. And I think it is complicated because it's objectively speaking, there are a lot of people who were poor who are no longer poor. And, you know, that's that's something worth worth noting. And at the same time, inequality has increased and oppression has continued. And so these problems have not gone away and in many cases have gotten worse.
0: Wall Street Journal had no problem with your your view toward large companies, I take it.
1: I would maintain that the Wall Street Journal still has quite a impressive separation between church and state, between the opinion pages and the news pages. I have a lot of friends who still work there and have done some really stellar reporting on these companies, some of the best reporting on these big companies like Amazon and Facebook that I've seen. And I think that's a great place for good watchdog journalism.
0: Many years ago, the separation was complete, but then along came Murdoch.
1: Well, I left tech reporting right around the time that the Wall Street Journal was acquired. I came back to the journal and I wasn't writing about business. Then I left the journal in 2010, so I haven't been there for 12 years, and so I hesitate to say anything about the inner workings, because I just don't know.
0: Vahini Vara, in 2021, you wrote an essay that was, quote, co-written by an AI algorithm. What was that about? I mean, how do you do that?
1: So I wrote this essay for The Believer called Ghosts. It was about grief. It was about my grief over the death of my sister. and. I was trying to figure out, it was something that I've had a really hard time writing about. And it felt like a really interesting space into which it would, I could insert AI, you know, like AI assistance of some kind. I wasn't sure how it would work. For me, the sort of exercise of seeing how it would work was part of what engaged me in the process. And so, you know, I've also tried to write fiction using using AI. And I've written some like what I think of as kind of interesting, effective short fiction with the help of GPT-3, this AI algorithm. But it's not something I'm interested in publishing because I worry about the ethical dimensions of that. But with this essay, the essay was about grief and it was also about our collective experience of grief. And it was also about sort of like talking about the unsayable. And so it was like this interesting context into which to insert AI. And and I I found it to be a really interesting experience. So the essay is called Ghosts and it was published in The Believer and it will be in this year's Best American Essays Anthology. And for radio people, it was also adapted for This American Life. So people can go find it uh, on the radio at This American Life.
0: Final question, Vahini Var. Uh, have you started work on another novel or back to focusing on short stories and journalism?
1: I do have notes toward the next novel. I have no idea what it is, but it's very different from The Immortal King Rao. I'll say that. I also am currently putting the final touches on edits for my story collection that comes out next year, and those are due back to my editor in about a week. So you caught me right as i'm right as i'm finishing that and my mind is like all things short stories right now
0: so no no journalism on the horizon the next couple of months
1: actually yes i am also i'm a contributing writer at the magazine wired and so i write two stories a year for wired and i'm just now starting to look into the next story for them but i don't know exactly what it's going to be yet
0: you've been listening to an interview with Fahini Vara whose novel is titled The Immortal King Rao Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com, and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.